This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by N Plus One Magazine, which features some of the most exciting and stylish political writing, essays, fiction, and cultural criticism on the left today. One piece that might interest Dig listeners is Gabriel Winant's J.D. Vance Changes the Subject, published in the magazine's brand new spring issue. In the piece, Winant, a labor historian, organizer, and previous Dig guest, examines J.D. Vance in the psychoanalytic repression that underpins his political project. Through a close reading of Vance's career and especially his memoir, Hillbilly Elegy, Winant argues that Vance is bent on an ethic of culpability, blaming and punishing the working class for the trauma of his own childhood. Looking to political figures like John Fetterman in Pennsylvania and Brandon Johnson in Chicago, Winant asks, how can the left build solidarity out of the real crises of deindustrialization that Vance has weaponized? Dig listeners can take 25% off a year-long print subscription to N Plus One at nplusonemag.com slash the dig. Enter the dig, that's one word, the dig, at checkout to get three issues delivered in the mail, plus full access to 18 years of paywalled essays, reviews, and fiction, all for less than $3 a month. That's N-P-L-U-S-O-N-E-M-A-G dot com slash the dig. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This is part two of a two-part series on progressive city politics in two big American cities, Philadelphia and Chicago. The Chicago Teachers Union, or CTU, has transformed the politics of the city of Chicago. In the decade and a half since a group of teachers organized within the CTU, known as the Caucus of Rank-and-File Educators, took over their union, the CTU has repeatedly gone on strike, opposed austerity, built a political organization called United Working Families that has reshaped electoral politics in the city, and established itself as a major fighting force for Chicago's working class as a whole. Nowhere has the union's power been on better display than the recent municipal elections in Chicago, in which the CTU won an incredible come-from-behind victory in the mayoral race, electing one of their own, former middle school teacher, CTU staffer, and Cook County Commissioner Brandon Johnson as mayor, first by making it to a runoff against a huge pool of challengers and an incumbent mayor, Lori Lightfoot, in the first round of voting in February, and then by defeating former Chicago Public Schools CEO and austerity hatchet man Paul Vallis in the runoff. The win was stunning, but in many ways, winning was the easy part. As he prepares to take office on May 15th as the executive of the United States' third largest city, Johnson has a wide range of challenges ahead of him. This interview was conducted on April 11th, a week after Johnson's victory at the storied Chicago venue, The Hideout. It was conducted by Jacobin editor and Dig guest host Micah Utrecht, and he hosted a conversation on the election and where Chicago's working class movement goes from here with Stacey Davis Gates, president of the CTU, Carlos Ramirez Rosa, a socialist city council member representing Chicago's 35th Ward, 
and Alex Hahn, the executive director of In These Times magazine, who worked for two decades as a union, community, and political organizer in Chicago. The CTU and the movement that has been built around it was in attendance and clearly feeling their oats, which you'll hear in the recording. Special thanks to The Hideout for hosting the conversation. And a special thanks to all you Dig listeners who support the pod at patreon.com slash the dig. We always need more supporters on Patreon because, believe it or not, every month, some listeners do decide to stop contributing, sometimes because they inexplicably no longer listen to this podcast, who knows why, but more often than not, according to the feedback we get, because someone lost a job or is dealing with some sort of financial crisis. We get that. And so we always need new support just to replace the support that we lose. But We also need to continue to grow, which thankfully we are because we are investing a ton of money into The Dig Presents, our really quite special new narrative documentary series. Episode 3 is coming in a few weeks, and you should check out the first two episodes if you have not done so already. There are so many talented radio producers out there, but very, very few places where they can do this sort of smart, strange, radical work. And if you live in the U.S., we also have books, tote bags, and coffee mugs to send you in the mail if you contribute at least $10 a month. A contribution of any size at all, any size, gets you our wonderful weekly newsletter emailed to your inbox. Please contribute now. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Stacey Davis Gates, Carlos Ramirez Rosa, and Alex Hahn. Stacey Davis-Gates is president of the Chicago Teachers Union. Carlos Ramirez Rosa is a socialist city council member representing Chicago's 35th Ward. And Alex Hahn is the executive director of In These Times magazine and worked for two decades as a union, community, and political organizer in Chicago. Hello, everyone. Thank you for packing the house here at the hideout. Standing room only in here. There, again, there are a couple seats here in the front. Um, before we get started, I just want to say my name is Micah Utrecht. I am the editor of Jacobin Magazine. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you to uh, Tim and everyone at the hideout who has made this event happen. All the In These Times staff who put in a lot of work for this. People who know me know that... Uh, after 14 years here, recently, I left Chicago. Yeah, I know. Yeah, might have, might have been a mistake here. And so when I meet people uh, in another city that I won't name where I now live and tell them that I'm uh, from Chicago, if they pay attention to politics, they sometimes say stuff like, oh, I've heard that there's some exciting stuff happening in Chicago, some good stuff. And I have to stop them and say, no, there's not good stuff that's happening in Chicago. Good stuff only begins to skim the surface of what has happened in this city over the past decade and a half. What's happening here in Chicago is a honest-to-God social movement spirit that is infusing the work of the labor movement, of community organizing, of elected officials fighting behind a banner to fight for the entire Chicago working class, to fight austerity, to fight racial inequality, and the Chicago Teachers Union is the anchor of that movement. 
But everybody up here would agree that that movement wouldn't be anything if it wasn't just the Chicago Teachers Union. It's also this this broad, multiracial, working class community, parents, neighbors, fighting for affordable housing against police brutality, all of it. And so I try... I, I struggle sometimes to communicate to people that what is happening here in Chicago is not just a couple victories here and there. Like there, it's like a religious feeling I get when I'm here. Uh, I had to come back because I know what it feels like to be in Chicago when uh, the CTU is out in the streets uh, and its allies are out in the streets. And so I'm very, very happy to be here tonight. We're going to talk a little bit about the history of how we got to this point. Of course, we're going to talk about some victories that maybe some people in this uh, room have heard of, maybe participated in. Uh, maybe Brandon Johnson might come up a couple times. I'm not sure. Um, and so I'm joined uh, for this discussion tonight uh, with Stacey Davis Gates, who is the president of the Chicago Teachers Union. Carlos Rosa, who is the alderman of the 35th Ward on the northwest side of Chicago. And Alex Hahn, uh, who is the new executive director of In These Times magazine. And also a longtime labor organizer with SEIU Healthcare in, here in Chicago, as well as the uh, Bernie 2020 campaign. Um, Stacy, Carlos, and Alex, welcome to the dig. So I think the thing that is most pressing on people's minds is this enormous electoral victory that was racked up a week ago. But before we get into to that, I want to set the scene a little bit because everybody knows that that victory would not have been possible without uh, a decade and a half plus of organizing that's taken a multi-decade uh, multi project of organizing in the city. So I wonder if we could just start with a uh, some some reflections on how we got uh, to this point long before Brandon Johnson was elected mayor of this city. Maybe, Stacey, we could start with you. How did we get to this crazy point where there is this social movement uh, rooted in the Chicago Teachers Union that is electing Brandon Johnson mayor? Thank you. Hello, everyone. How do we get here? Well, I would like for CTU to be able to take a lot of credit, but that would not be an honest reflection of how this happened. And I think about all of the people who come before us, the idea of organizing this boldly in Chicago is rooted into the fabric of Chicago because it has had to be that. Chicago, it can be the greatest place on earth and it can be the worst place on earth. Just look at, you know, what's happening around this area, right? Uh, and, and, and then put that into some context. Chicago is a deeply segregated city that breeds generational inequity, trauma, poverty, pain. But what it has also generated is generational resistance, right? We, we talk about Fred Hampton. We talk about Alinsky even, right? And so there is a place for this type of work that we're doing here. And so I want to honor that infrastructure as well. Now, it's different in different iterations. This one is anchored by a labor movement that is also red and purple. SEIU welcomed us into the labor movement. They told us things that we didn't know when we came in the very first time. So, yes, CTU has taken a lot of bold stances. We've drawn deep lines in the sand. 
And then we've carried it out. So I'm not taking anything from our membership. I'm not taking anything from our coalition of parents, of students, of community groups. But it is good to have an anchor that has some money. It is. That's why they keep coming for me and our money. No, it's all connected. I need us to own the connectedness of this narrative. It is an easy narrative to call a black woman a thief because there's a place for it. But understand what the issue it is. It's not that I have a signature on a check. It is that there is a check to go out here to fund this type of resistance. That's the problem. And so like own the fact that we are investing in our liberation. We are investing in our pathway to have a real voice and to, to make democracy multidimensional in a place where it's been surfaced and misdefined. So CTU does play that role and we are daring other people to play that role with us by organizing every summer. Brandon Johnson went through the Chicago Teachers Union Organizing Institute there should be a waiting list to get inside that institute this summer, right? Most of our key leaders who were a part of the campaign or any action we do go through the organizing institute because it is an appropriate place for people to be trained. That's the other thing that they don't like about it. We're not coming out here thinking about something. We are running experiments that we've thought about. We are testing what is possible. So to what Micah said, I knew last Tuesday was possible. Ask anyone in this room that worked with me. I am not the one who came on the back of the wagon holding on to the muffler. <laughs> I said it from the beginning and not because I know stuff, but because I am seeing the impact of the stuff that I've been a part of, right? We see this, it is possible because we've built it to be possible. The other part of this that I think is gonna be increasingly important is how we see ourselves. We don't always see ourselves as powerful and you shouldn't because there's nothing in this world that tells us to be powerful. In fact, everything coming at us tells us that we are not powerful. So to behave in a powerful way is uncomfortable and it's unfamiliar, and then you get a lot of resistance from it, right? So it is easier to not be powerful. And so we have to name these things. I think the second thing that is gonna be important in this season is acknowledging that everything is weird. <laughs> it is. I have never had the feelings that I've had in this last week where I wanted to both cry and laugh at the same time. Literally, at the same time, it is disconcerting. Do not leave your heart and your spirit behind in your reflection of what you are experiencing right now. Because that is why people have misgivings, because you don't want to get your heart broken. It wasn't that you didn't think it was possible. It's like, well, if it is impossible, then how do I get up the next day? And then the day after that, that's what you were thinking. 
we have to be honest that this work for us is from our heart. It is an energy. It is a spirit. It is something that we almost can't even control. And we have to name that. That's why I'd say that we, the most powerful, radical tool that we have is love. Because that is what's driving this. But don't front. Your heart is all in this. So what do you do with your heart right now? Because we don't have the government that we need yet. He's not walking onto a fifth floor that's going to welcome the many. <laughs> Carlos, I want to hear from you because it's almost eight years to the day that we did a panel very similar to this one when you were first elected and you've been on uh, city council eight years at this point. Um, so I wonder if you could reflect maybe on the uh, the electoral side uh, as somebody who has been a kind of champion of this kind of movement spirit uh, before it was cool in the city of Chicago. Yeah. So I know Stacey wants to be humble and I know she wants to say that CTU cannot claim this win. But there would be no Brandon Johnson as mayor. There would be no progressive movement that is taking over City Hall and bringing the people into City Hall without a fighting militant rank and file led union. So props to the Chicago Teachers Union. Props to the caucus of rank and file educators. You know, in 2010, I was 21 and I was a union summer for jobs intern with the AFL-CIO. And I got to go to Catedral Cafe in uh, Little Village. And I, as part of my internship, got to write a blog on the AFL-CIO Now blog, which is now defunct. I guess Jacobin took it out. Um, about Karen Lewis and the speech that she gave in the 22nd Ward that day about how a school is a community and community is family. And she talked about the school privatizers. She talked about how when you had an Arnie Duncan or a Paul Vallis that said that it, we're going to turn a school around, right? And we're going to bring in Teach for America. And we're going to deprofessionalize teaching. And we're going to privatize public education and bring in charter schools and bring in the business mentality that they were forgetting that a school was a community and that a community was a family. And... You know, the other day I was texting Stacy and I said, isn't this crazy that Paul Vallis created his own destruction? Um, you, you see, I, I have been in politics long enough now to know that there are a lot of people who think they're very smart and think that one day they will be mayor of the city of Chicago. And you know for a fact that from the moment that Paul Vallis went to go work in Daly's office as the budget director, you know he was like, I'm going to be mayor one day. And then he went on to be the, the CEO of the public schools, and he went on to do a rampage and, and to cause so much pain and destruction, uh, not just in CPS, but in New Orleans, in Haiti, in Chile, all across the planet. And it was here in Chicago that teachers said no. The teacher said, you are not going to deprofessionalize our profession. You are not going to disinvest our schools, that we demand the schools that our children and that our city deserve. And it was that fight back that led to the election of Brandon Johnson as our mayor. So we can never, ever, ever forget that this most recent iteration of our progressive movement is built around the infrastructure of a militant labor union that dared to take risks 
that dared to take risks and dared to take a risk in supporting me against a 12-year incumbent in 2015, that dared to take risks in sending Delia Ramirez to Congress, um, and, and dared to take the biggest risk of all this past April 4th. So I'm eternally grateful for that. You know, I feel like we're kind of going through puberty now. You know, like this is uncharted terrain. I wish that we had a book that was like, there are going to be changes in your life. And <laughs> um, we, we don't have that book, but, but we do have each other. And, and we do have a community that is battle tested, that has been in the trenches of our most important fights. And so I'm just eternally grateful. There are growing pains, right, when you go through puberty, but it is part of the process of maturing, of growing, and, and hitting your stride. So I'm just so happy to be where we're at and to be part of this movement, uh, and I'm really excited for what's to come. I think there are a lot of deep parallels between this moment right now and a lot of times in history. So I have to take a second to let people know, at In These Times Magazine, on March 30th, we sent our latest print issue uh, to print. And it included on the front page my first editorial as executive director, which assumed that Brandon Johnson would win the mayoral race on April 4th. And, and there's a little story in there about just having this memory of Brandon rolling up on a busted hybrid bike I think in the fall of 2011, to a camp out that we were having in front of the Board of Ed, because at that point, that was what parents and teachers and community members had to do in order to have a chance just to make a public comment in the Board of Education meeting. We had to camp out overnight on the sidewalks of downtown. And I, I had this memory of Brandon rolling up on his bike after he put, I think he just had one kid then, I think after he put his, his son to bed. Um, and he rolled up on his bike. It reminded me of a moment 10 years before then at the first camp out in front of the Board of Ed that I was at where I met G2 Brown from the Journey for Justice Alliance, where I met Amisha Patel, who has long been the director of the Grassroots Collaborative, and that we, we see these parallels. We see these people who have been engaged in struggle for a very long time and who we are, we are able to see finally the fruition of some of that fight. I think about the news, I think it was today or yesterday, that Walmart is shutting down four stores. They're shutting down stores in Chatham, in Bronzeville, Little Village, in Lakeview. And I remember the struggle in 2006 and 2007 for a big box living wage, the struggle to keep Walmart out of Chicago. And if they came in, we wanted them to pay their workers. I think it was $10.50 an hour at that point. And $3 in health benefits. Thank you, historian of the city council. I appreciate that. And, and I think about the enormous struggle that was waged, really, to shift and change the public perception of what was possible. I actually remember when Action Now, a community organization based in Englewood and on the west side, started knocking on doors in Englewood and talking to people about a Walmart potentially moving in. At that moment, 80% of the residents of Englewood were in support of that. They had no reason not to be. They needed jobs. After we were done campaigning, a majority of those residents were against Walmart. Richard Daly still let Walmart in. But that 2007 election that followed that was the first kind of crack in the armor of the machine that I think, again, is coming to fruition today. 
You know, I think of all of those struggles of the last 20 years, of decades before that too. But I think of the great immigrant rights march of 2006 with a million people in the streets. I think about what that inspired in the movement for undocumented people across the country. I think about how that actually inspired the takeover of Republic Windows by the members of the United Electrical Workers in 2008. And so I can see a direct line that has led us to this place. And I think that Stacey is right. We're not used to having power, right? People are not used to exercising power. And I, I love Carlos's um, puberty analogy. I do have two teenagers uh, at home too. And so that kind of really hits home. But I think that we are in such an amazing generative place right now. We are in such a place where we have to train ourselves to imagine what is possible. We have to train ourselves to lift our vision up from what is directly in front of our feet because we have a once in a lifetime, a once in a generation opportunity and we can't let that go to waste. So Chicago Teachers Union member and staffer Brandon Johnson is now the mayor-elect of Chicago. <laughs> He's a, as as Stacy said on election night, he is a paid union organizer. <laughs> and as far as I'm aware, there's not really anything comparable to this situation in recent American history. Obviously, someone like a Harold Washington comes to mind, but you know Harold Washington didn't emerge from a militant democratic labor movement in the same way that Brandon Johnson uh, has. And so I'm wondering, uh, Stacey, if you could talk about how you all are approaching this transition. I mean, this you're, you're going from the streets to the fifth floor of City Hall, assumedly not giving up the streets, but that is, you are making that transition at least partially. So how are you approaching uh, this this transition? That's a great question. Um, before I answer it, because I think the answer is embedded in my love for my president, Jesse Sharkey, <laughs> who I didn't see. Um, and what seeing Jesse reminds me of is 2010 when CORE came to CTU. In 2010, this militant group that we keep talking about, the conspiracy, as Rahm Emanuel called them, um, they took over the Chicago Teachers Union. And during this campaign, this campaign, my granny would say, well, don't come out in the wash, we'll come out in the rinse. And baby, the rinse was powerful in this campaign season because you saw two of our, one of our former presidents and one of our former leaders of Chicago Teachers Union basically said, Paul Vallis was the best thing for Chicago public schools. Hey, but but understand in 2010, that's what Karen, Jesse, Jackson, Michael, Christine walked into. That's what they walked into, a union that had sold us out. I'm saying it out loud because they said what they said out loud. Um, yeah, I'm still hashtag petty. Hey, did y'all know that our union fired our boss? Name one that has fired their boss. Name one. That's the power of the labor movement. Hey, right there. talk to it. Um, no, but seriously, so in the real, in 2010, they come in the door to a union that had acquiesced to his own pain and destruction. 
the loss of membership, the loss of schools, but the loss of that community who that Carlos reminded me of, because that's why we say school communities, because of what Carlos just educated us on. We say school communities. We don't just say schools, because if you're closing a school, you're not closing a building, you're 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 short circuiting a community. You're destroying a community. That said, we came in in 2010 to an expectation that we would be just as awful as the other people were. So much so that Rahm Emanuel said his low-hanging fruit within his first 100 days were going to be off the backs of educators, students, and their families in those school communities. He came in saying that the teacher and the union were two different things. And why he said that, because he's not a dumb man. You may not like him. You may not agree with him. And he's not dumb. And so he thought that was low-hanging fruit because it had been low-hanging fruit. It had been low-hanging fruit. And he was convinced of his ability to win something in there. And he wasn't wrong. It was Senate Bill 7. It was a bill that marginalized the ability of teachers to have some sort of professional agency in the classroom. It penalized you for choosing to work in schools that were marginalized by under-resourcing, the disinvestment of the community. Right, right now, if you look at our teachers' evaluations, the teachers who are teaching in black communities and brown communities and the communities that are lower income, their evaluations are always lower. <clears throat> that is the trend. That said, he came in, he knew it was low-hanging fruit. They hired every lobbyist, stand on children came to town, advanced Illinois, they held these hearings around, you know, the state to say that this was about something else except for rolling on teachers and not teachers everywhere, teachers in Chicago. And we didn't know that that situation had already been completed before we started. Think about that. If you know the legislative process, a bill like that, as big as it was, was already greased to win. But Karen came back to people who said, you sold us out. Because <laughs> we lost. Now, Karen said, I didn't sell you out. Something happened, and I did not consent to it, though. And she didn't consent to it. It did happen to her. Because it was already done. Do you know how much is already done in this city? So I'm saying this to say that we are going to have to stretch in this moment. Sweet Jesus, we're going to have to stretch. We got to acquire a more complex vocabulary. I invite you to get in touch with your hearts and your minds and be able to understand what you're feeling because everything is not the same thing. And then find someone to have a thought partnership with. Because we are piloting the next level of this project. And we don't know what we're doing. We don't. Just like we did in 2010. But pay attention to where we are in 2023. There is no other militant union organizer and leader who's been elected to an office of this scale in the United States, I don't think. 
in Brazil, in South Africa, in other places of the global south, we have examples of movement leaders of that kind of scale. Now, I am not trying to compare Brandon Johnson to Lula to Mandela, but I do think we should understand what, well, maybe I am, I don't know. They've got, you know, there's, and, and so, but I do think it's important for us to understand, I think about Brazil as a really interesting parallel too, as an extractive colonial state, Chicago inside it, um, we exist in that kind of extractive colonial economy, and we're still trying to grapple with how we move out of that. How do we liberate all of our people? How do we provide a place where people can take care of their families, uh, take care of their communities, and do that with dignity? And so I do think that we have to look globally because we don't have examples. The city you move to, which will remain nameless, doesn't give us examples, right? We don't have examples, sorry. Um, but we, we just don't have a path. And so I, to, to go to the, the question around transition, and uh, I'm not fully qualified to answer it, but I'm going to attempt to, and then I'll hand it over to Carlos, who I'm sure knows a lot more than me in general about how government functions. I think this project has been one of expanding the tent, of expanding the coalition. Now that coalition is going to require more expansion as it goes forward for us to control majority power, for us to be in a position where the majority of the people of Chicago see themselves reflected in that so we can sustain that power and so we can build on it. I have a great amount of trust in Brandon, in a lot of the people around him, in the people who have helped him win this campaign to do the right thing. Are they going to be perfect at every moment? No. And if, they, if that was an expectation, then we should just pack it up and go home. You know, We should just win the election, then walk away. But I have a lot of faith, having watched this campaign, having watched the challenges that came onto this campaign, and the way that they were handled, the way that that coalition was expanded. I have a lot of confidence in how this is going to work moving forward. So to follow up on that, and this question can be for the other panelists as well, I mean, What's going on right now in this transition period? I mean, this is this this key moment where everyone is figuring out what a Brandon Johnson administration is going to look like. A lot of his demands, it was very obvious to anyone who was paying attention, came from the the movement. It came from progressive groups, whether it was on criminal justice reform, the way that he was talking about crime in the city, uh, the way that he talked about labor, the way that he talked about all of the kinds of uh, demands, treatment, not trauma, of course, was one that uh, he really championed. Um, are the people who are the people who are now being tapped for the transition team? I mean, are, is that transition team going to come from the movement that elected him to office? It was clear that he relied on the movement to get into office. What does the uh, transition process at this point look like? So let me let me tell you how I'm thinking about it. And then I'll tell you what I know. <laughs> so how I'm thinking about it is that we do not have the government we deserve yet. We have the government that has been created by the people that forced us into survival. So what we should be doing is praying for our brother every night. That's number one because that is not his space. The next thing that we need to do is figure out how do we both hold the government we have, because if we mess this up, they ain't giving us nothing else. I'm sorry, they ain't going to even let us fight to take something else, because they ain't give us this either. So how do you hold the government that we have while working to transform it into the government that we deserve? 
That is the central question. Because we don't go in on day one with treatment, not trauma. We go in day one powerful, but we don't go in with the levers to change that right away. So this is where we get to stretch our thought process beyond movement and still hold movement. You see how this has gotten more complex for us? Hell yes, it has. So how do we continue to hold, cultivate, grow, expand, make more powerful our movement? Because everyone does not get to go to City Hall. I'm telling you that right now because we need movement. And let's stay in movement for a moment. That movement is not the movement it was before Tuesday. It's not. My life ain't either. There are people who want to do harm to me. Like real harm. It's really like me. You understand what I'm saying? So there are changes. Now, that is a severe change. But there are changes to who we are today that we weren't Tuesday. Has anyone thought about imposter syndrome and what that feels like? Because that is a collective feeling now. Black women ain't the only ones feeling that in rooms anymore. Hold on to what it, Google it. I know y'all, this is a left crowd. Y'all better know it. But imagine an entire movement in imposter syndrome. Is that going to paralyze us? The hell you say it does paralyze you. Take it from a woman who struggles with it daily. It is paralyzing. So we have got to run to defining this and feeling this for the movement. Because if we don't, we're not going to be at the starting line. We're going to be behind the starting line. And my people know I believe in all gas. That's right. That, that being said, we got to deal with our identity. Who are we today that we were not last week this time? It's Tuesday, ain't it? Seven days. So we have to figure out who we are. and We have to own the power that we've built, the new people that have come along, and what we do to hold that down. The ground that we treaded, shout out to Asha on the south side of Chicago. Shout out. to our sister Crystal on the west side of Chicago. Two black women organizers who took upon themselves to not just say BJ for Chicago, but to say the many for Chicago. And so we have new people. As I look at Gervais, who just like set up shop in the sixth ward. So those are things that are going to be like increasingly important. Who are we? Movement. Ain't nobody did this before. Not on this scale. So who are we? What are our new aspirations? What new dreams do we dream? What new goals do we define? What new demands do we put forward with someone who knows the definition and understands the strategy too? Okay, I'm getting there, I promise. I told, I'm thinking a lot. Um, I promise. So that's one thing that I'm thinking about. And then number two, we can't have an effed up government, y'all. Y'all didn't seen that for the last four years. <laughs> At least I can't have it. Uh, no, ain't nothing been like the last four. Not for me. Not for, <laughs> take it from me. No, it, it was hard. Unnecessarily. Unnecessarily. So what does it look like 
for our brother to have a competent government? And what will that take? What are those decisions? And what would it look like if our project is being held by an incompetent administrator? And what are those impacts? See all questions. I'm Astra Taylor, and you're listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, a podcast that helps us understand the past so we can organize for a better future. That's why you should support the show at patreon.com slash the dig. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Occupation Organizer, A Critical History of Community Organizing in America by Clément Petitjean. The community organizing tradition is long overdue for re-examination. In this book, scholar-activist Clément Petitjean traces the history from its roots in the progressive movement to its expansion and diverging paths during the social movements of the 60s and 70s. At the time, Saul Alinsky became the most popular professional radical in the U.S., and groups like SNCC, SDS, and the Black Panthers recast organizers as horizontal, anti-hierarchical spade workers, those who do the work as part of the community, rather than standing apart from it. But in the years since, the professionalization of organizing work has only increased, despite the critiques. Only by grappling with its limitations and pitfalls, Petty John insists, can we learn to build durable, effective organizations for change. Occupation Organizer, out now from Haymarket Books, and available at haymarketbooks.org, where U.S. and U.K. readers receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £25, respectively. So I think folks are right that we don't quite have a exact roadmap. We don't have the, the handbook to explain how to deal with this new situation we find ourselves in. But there are many examples throughout the world of people getting elected, leftists getting elected to office. And then once they enter office, uh, they may be entered uh, with the, uh, the support of very uh, engaged, active social movements, you know, trade unions that go on strike and do all that stuff. And then once they enter office, they have to focus all their attention on governing and they demobilize their membership, uh, which has caused all kinds of problems for left elected officials uh, throughout world history, the history of the 20th century. So I'm not asking anyone to demobilize. I am actually asking us to find a different gear because we on another plateau. I, this is not about demobilization. Our organizer is organizing in another space. We still got to organize in our space. And if I know con concretely... There are people who talked about prevention and not policing or incarceration. See, the polling was misleading. And then after the election, they tell us the real story. So the polling says that people believe in treatment, not trauma. The polling says that people believe in investment. So how are we organizing on the South side and the West side to make sure that people like me, my aunts, my, my mother, my grandmothers, that they understand that they don't have to have the only public service come from the CPD. That we get to dream and imagine more. See, we have greater work to do because now we have someone who won't call us crazy. We won't have someone that will deliberately lift the bridges. We have someone who will know what prep time is. 
So how do we maximize that? Like my f- my neck doesn't have a foot on top of it anymore. So what else do I get to think about now that I couldn't think about for like pushing the foot off my neck? See, we get opportunity because feet ain't like pressing up against us. So what do we do with that? So no, this is not about demobilizing and please don't demobilize. Let's continue to evolve though. So yeah, my question and for the other panelists as well, how, how does that happen in the city? How do you do, you know, walk and chew gum at the same time with keep these social movements mobilized uh, while also turning to this question of governing? I, mean, I think that um, Mayor Brandon Johnson is going to have some very serious things that he's going to be coming up against. There's going to be, uh, for any mayor, uh, particularly one who comes from this kind of uh, militant working class background, obviously the knives are going to be out for him on crime, for example. Uh, we're going to continue to hear from corporations that they're going to leave the city because they don't like what Mayor Brandon Johnson is doing. How do we address those kinds of issues? You have a, a f- head of the Fraternal Order of the Police who says there's going to be blood in the streets and said that a thousand cops are going to resign under a Mayor Brandon Johnson. So what is the role that the movement that delivered Brandon to this point, like concretely, what's that going to look like under a Johnson administration? So I would say one, join United Working Families. Um, So United Working Families uh, was founded in 2014, looking towards the 2015 uh, municipal election. You know, Alex spoke about the big box living wage fight. And there were a lot of older people who voted to pass the big box living wage ordinance in 2006, 2007. Then Daly vetoed it. And a lot of older people that had stood with labor voted to sustain the veto. And that ordinance, which would have improved the lives of people who worked at corporations worth billions and billions of dollars, died. And so labor invested a ton of money to get people out of office. And they flipped a lot of seats in the city council for the first time in a very long time. And within a matter of months, days of those people being elected, they were all co-opted by the daily administration. And so from that lesson came the notion that, one, we should have a progressive caucus, right? And you see that formed in 2011. Two, uh, leading into the 2015 election, you have the notion that we need independent political power, right? That we need organization, right? We are leftists. We are organizers. We know we need organization. Um, And so that is where United Working Families uh, comes from. I am uh, running in 2015 as a UWF endorsed candidate, and I made a commitment that upon my election, I would form a ward-based independent political organization in my community. And we have kept that commitment. We created United Neighbors of the 35th Ward. They keep me accountable. They fight to make sure that when I'm taking big fights in City Hall, I have people that are marching with me, people that are moving with me. Um, They also work to elect other people, like 8th District County Commissioner Anthony Joel Quesada, who came out of our ranks. Um, So that, that is what we need, right? We need organization. And look, I spent the past two days calling a lot of aldermen. Uh, And let me tell you, it was a lot easier calling them now than it was two weeks ago. Um, But we're still going to need organization and we're still going to need people in communities that are organizing and pushing for things like treatment, not trauma that are pushing for things like bring Chicago home, make it easy, make it easier for your older person to stand with Brandon Johnson and with our progressive agenda. So that is the key is to continue to build that organization at the grassroots level, because ultimately that is our biggest strength. That is our biggest strength. That is how a candidate with less money, right, was able to make up the difference 
in field on April 4th. I mean, when it came to the Vallis campaign, a lot of these wards were ghost towns. Vallis had nobody. And the people he was paying to be out there getting out the vote for him, they were like, we voted for Brandon. This is a paycheck. There, there was this one guy, he was like, he was like, oh, you got to be out there for Brandon? I wanted Brandon. They stuck me with Vallis. And I was like, yeah, you know, the, the big uh, corporate headquarters where they decide which uh, campaign you're going to be out there for. Man. Um, but yeah, so I, I think that's going to be critically important, right? And, and it is your right to petition your elected officials. And it is our responsibility to be out there fighting for these transformative policies. So it is going to be so good to have a mayor on the fifth floor that is deeply committed to these issues, that was on the front lines of the fights to implement these progressive policies, that is a powerful organizing tool, but that is not the end-all be-all. At the end of the day, we know that it is people power that has to continue to power the type of change we want to see at City Hall. I mean, I, I do think Carlos in the 35th Ward, a lot of our other friends you know, in the City Council, these, these are great examples where organization building continues um, where things can keep pushing you know in this direction that opens up more political possibility because it's not just about giving strength to those elected officials it's not just about a lot of people like to talk about accountability with elected officials I don't think that's the right word when we're talking about people like Carlos people like Brandon who come from our movements and who are a part of our movements and who continue to be a part of our movements I I do think it's also important, and I think this is something that the Chicago Teachers Union and the core caucus that United Working Families um, have really been trying to do over the last several years as well, which is spread the gospel outside of Chicago. We are not on an island in Chicago. We have to deal with a lot of pressures, whether it is from the state, whether it's nationally, the winds of what the narrative around crime is. You know, a lot of them nationally have been centered around Chicago, which is part of what has the mainstream corporate media, you know, mainline Democrats really confused right now about how to respond um, because they have seen that Chicago has responded in a different way. I do think it's important for us and also recognizing recognizing the audience that's going to be listening to this nationally. It's not going to be all people in Chicago. How do we start these kind of organizations where you're able to identify who are the allies in labor? Who are the allies who are working with parents, who are working in the immigrant communities, um, who are working on a set of other issues around police accountability? How do we build these kind of organizations everywhere? Because we cannot succeed in Chicago if we are alone in Chicago. If we continue to be the only political project that looks and feels and walks and talks the way that we do, we are destined to fail. And so we have to figure out how to spread this much more broadly and much more deeply. Um, we're running a little low on time, but Carlos, I wonder if you could talk specifically about the city council and what the new openings are on the city council. I mean, there, you know, the city council has historically been a rubber stamp body for the mayor, and that has changed in recent years. Coming out of this most recent election, it seems like there is the best opportunity for uh, the city council to actually play a significant and, and, and powerful role in the city's uh, politics. And there are a large number of people who have been elected to the council who are like you, who uh, are committed to this working class agenda. So can you talk about what the uh, opportunities on the council are? So April 4th, of course, there was not just uh, Brandon Johnson on the ballot, but there were a number of runoffs. And I've got good news. Progressives swept those runoffs. Um, and it was just so beautiful to see. 
um, that there will be a net increase in the number of truly progressive members of the Chicago City Council. This is also the most diverse city council in the city's history. Um, it is younger, more female, um, and, and it's just truly beautiful to see. You know, I think about the Latino caucus. We went from a like six out of 12 progressive to now nine out of 13 progressive. So that is a, a, a phenomenal shift. Um, we went from having two Latinas to having six Latinas. And five of those six Latinas are uh, progressive. Uh, we now have three people that are younger than me on the Chicago City Council. Um, and that includes people like Angela Clay, who will be joining the the Democratic Socialist Caucus. Um, and, and I think so importantly, as, as we've talked about, not only do we have a bigger, stronger progressive caucus, but we now have a mayor that we can work with. And that is a huge, huge, huge change. You know, as, as Stacy noted, it means it has to reflect a change in our thinking, right? Because we've been on the defense this whole time, and now we have an opportunity to go on the offense with our agenda. So I'm really excited. The city council sworn in on May 15th. And then shortly after May 15th is the first full meeting of the city council. And that is when we will vote to organize ourselves. So it's critically important that we have a council organization um, with committees and committee membership roles that will facilitate collaboration, that will facilitate a government that can deliver for working people and deliver on the things that Chicagoans overwhelmingly want to see, taxing the rich through Bring Chicago Home so that we can get people off the streets and get them into permanent housing, passing treatment, not trauma, so we can have a network of mental health first responders rooted out of public mental health clinics responding to so many crises in our communities. So we have a we have a big task ahead of us, but I'm really hopeful with all of the new organizers in government that we're going to make uh, fast work of it. And I'm really excited. So uh, mainstream Democratic Party leaders, uh, a lot of them came out against Brandon Johnson in uh, not the election. Not a lot. Not a lot. I just want to make that clear, okay? It was like 70 Democratic elected officials versus like 20 for Vallis, okay? I just want to make that clear, okay? It's good to get the, the math correct, but it's undeniably true that the CTU has had to really fight against some of the mainstream currents in the Democratic Party during its time since 2010. I mean, it's gone against, at the time when Core was elected to office, for example, in 2010, the uh, austerity-minded, neoliberal school privatization attacks on teachers' unions agenda, that was what was dominant in the Democratic Party at that point. And the CTU, through going on strike and pushing back against that, has changed that. But there are still many currents, many of the most powerful currents in the Democratic Party, uh, who are not on board with the uh, CTU agenda. And now that we have a uh, mayor-elect, Brandon Johnson, he's going to come up against a lot of those forces. So how are you all, I mean, we'll start with you, Stacey, how are you thinking about how the CTU is going to go up against those kind of forces within the Democratic Party itself? Well, I think the Chicago Teachers Union it has some of the smartest people creating and leading strategy. I depend on their multidimensional thought process. So I'm not afraid of that challenge. What I will say is that they haven't proven that that school deform can work, right? They also couldn't prove that our demands and resistance vis-a-vis -vis COVID mitigations was wrong either. 
especially in the places where many of our students reside, they've lost the argument on if teachers, school personnel get to have a say in something. So they've lost those arguments. Now here's the rub though, they're still here. <laughs> right, they, they, they still exist. They never go anywhere, right? Like never. Uh, right. Um, so it's how do you coexist with them in a different capacity, right? They're still here. What do they actually need? What is it that they get to say they agree with? What do you really agree with? You're still here. You want to exist in this place. Remember, they get us to agree with them on stuff. They force agreement. They do. So what do we get them to agree with? Do, do they now agree that we need progressive revenue because schools have to be funded equitably? Can we get them to agree to that? Um, do they now agree that schools are communities and that you got to anchor resources and agency and democracy within that design? Do they agree with that? Because in 2024, we get to elect half of that school board and they just burn up money. You know, every time they send it to Vallis, you set it on fire. Petty. <laughs> Real petty. But what do they get to agree with? See, I'm about releasing the burden of having to always show my work and prove myself. See, get out of imposter syndrome. We ain't on a hot seat. We are empowered. Not empowered, but empowered. You understand my point? So what do they get to agree with us about? That's the question you put to them. Stop answering their questions. Start asking them. I think Carlos's point about who endorsed who is a really salient point. I think that this was, again, the first example of a campaign at this scale where a left progressive coalition has led and the center of the party has had to either step aside or follow. And we were facing the same right-wing forces that are out there, the same right-wing forces that are frankly in Tennessee, the same right-wing forces that are around the country are attacking our people. And so I do think it's important for us to understand how do we create a left and progressive coalition that forces, you know, the question of vote blue no matter who, how do we force them to actually have to uh, respond and accede to the demands that we have? I'm also, what Stacy just talked about made me think of, what if we had had a fair tax campaign with a mayor who was willing to stand on his soapbox and shout from the rafters to vote, we would have won that fair tax campaign. We would have a different tax structure in the state of Illinois today. And so I do think, again, I think, you know, a pattern here, we can't sell ourselves short. We can't have, I was kind of joking earlier today, on the left, we're used to being in a loser mindset. That's not, we're used to losing. I've lost one million times over the last 25 years. I don't even understand what it's like to win, but I'm real excited to learn. And so I'm willing to set that aside. 
you know, how do you respond to loss? That's all great. We've learned a lot of moral lessons and wonderful things from that. You know, fuck it. I'm done with that. So we're moving forward. You heard it from Alex Hahn. Loser mindset is over. Loser mindset is so yesterday. Carlos, anything you want to chat? Well, I've been winning since 2015. Um, I I should say, on the northwest side of Chicago, we have had winner mindset for the last eight years. Uh, (laughs) Wait, Carlos, you should should talk your shit for a second, because I think, I wasn't going to ask this, but like the the northwest side really showed up for Brandon Johnson. All you got to do is look at the map. And you see yes, that. We so, did. so can you yes, just talk about that for a second? Um, you know, organizing, long-term organizing, that is the key. And I think having a coalition of voters that believe that our government can do better for people, that we can invest in people. And so Brandon spoke to that. You know, before we endorsed Brandon Johnson, I sat down with a lot of candidates who ran this cycle. And I told them all, I said, look, when it comes to policing, the position is very nuanced. Voters on the Northwest side don't just want to hear that you're going to add more police. They want to hear about what you're going to do to invest in the community. The only candidate who I did not have to tell that to was Brandon Johnson. (laughs) He knew that already because that was his default position based upon his trajectory, based upon his record as an organizer and as an elected official, based upon the work that he had already done on the county board. Um, and I think voters rewarded him because they heard a message that resonated to them that spoke to their values and spoke to their politics. So, so of course, we're very proud of the work that we've done on the Northwest side. You know, first, we have Will Gazzardi elected in 2014 um, with the support of, you know, SCIU and CTU, uh, you know, myself in 2015. In 2016, we have Omar Kino being a charter school lobbyist um, with the support of labor. Then in 2018... We have Delia Ramirez, and we have the election of Brandon Johnson. So we've had a a string of wins. What I'm most proud of, too, is that the city council passed an ordinance called the Empowering Communities for Public Safety Ordinance. And that created 66 district councilors, three elected in each police district. And we swept those elections on February 28th. And so now you have a, a democratic structure of community input when it comes to policing. And the vast majority of those police district counselors endorse Brandon Johnson in the runoff. So I think we truly have a, a governing coalition. Of course, we're very proud to have played our part on the Northwest side. Um, so the youth turnout, um, they have to see a reflection of their values too. I mean... And they come into the world, or I'm a mother of three. I have a 14-year-old, and he has ideas about a whole bunch of things that we never engage in because we're always telling them to do something because that's what I do. Um, Pick up your clothes, do your homework, put your phone back downstairs, turn that game off. You know, all of the things you tell them. So you're not engaging with them on with how their values are evolving and what they are. And so I think that Brandon, our mayor-elect, his youth, his ability to convey his experience as an educator in Cabrini, I think, was also compelling. Our young people have a lot of thoughts about policy and impact. We don't access that. And I think that there's something that was triggered in them. 
I also think that there was deliberate outreach. There were people in the UWF universe who organized everything walking and talking. And so they were able to bring in other voices and other people too. Like literally I've been with UWF since the beginning and I go to events now. I don't know those people. And that's beautiful. That's beautiful. The hard part is sitting inside of the dilemma that we're in. The dilemma of poverty, lack of health care, lack of progressive revenue. That is the dilemma we sit in. So what do we inspire and organize? What do we call upon? How do we shift? Like if Brandon Johnson, a paid union organizer from the Chicago Teachers Union, ooh, um, can win in Chicago, what other aspirations, what other dreams, what else do we have? Like see opportunity. Do not be confined or restricted to our behavior and experiences. I deal with the same trauma. It is imposter syndrome. Yes, I don't want my feelings hurt either. All of everything, we are the same. And opportunity. Question that we gathered under on the on the flyer for tonight was where this movement uh, that's been built in Chicago goes from here. So closing thoughts on that question. Brandon came to speak to a group of workers in the fall of 2012. This was the week after the teacher strike in 2012. And I was working with these workers, restaurant workers, retail workers downtown on the Magnificent Mile. We were looking for somebody to come talk about the strike to these workers. They'd been meeting every week for several months, sometimes 10 workers, 15, 5, 20. You know, organizers know how that goes. Um, the week after the teacher strike, the room was packed. And these were workers who were 18, 19, 20, 21 years old. These were workers who had recently graduated from Chicago public schools, were trying to figure out how to work two jobs, take care of their family, you know, bouncing from couch to couch, trying to get some credits at city colleges at the same time. And those workers saw that fight of the Chicago Teachers Union and were inspired. Brandon Johnson came and spoke to them. I don't want to give him too much credit. He's getting a lot of credit for everything in the world right now. But six weeks after that, those workers launched the Fight for 15 here in Chicago. And it was enough to say, you all won. You all took on a fight that seemed impossible, and you won. Whatever the specifics of what you won was kind of not important. You put up a fight, and that was a fight for all of us. And so they set their sights higher, and took on another fight that was for all of us. And so I think that what comes out of this and what needs to come out of this is the next expressions. What are those fights going to be? How do we expand who is a part of this project? How do we expand who imagines themselves as being you know, a full citizen of this city? And I don't say citizen in an American citizen way. You know, How are we expanding that community, and how are we growing? And I think there's an enormous amount of potential there. You know, similar, similar to what Alex just said, our movement must grow and our movement must deliver. We have to deliver. There are people who are fearful of walking down the block outside of their home. There are people who are struggling to make ends meet, to keep the lights on, to put food on the table. And we have to deliver for those people. And in the act of delivering for those people, we will win their trust and we will see the ability of our movement to grow. And in order to deliver for those people, 
we have to have a governing coalition that grows. And so I'm just really excited about all the work. You know, the reward for good work is more work. And so we have done a lot of work over many, many years. And we have won an elected school board. We have won a path towards community control of the police. We removed the carve-outs from the welcoming city ordinance so that we can be a true sanctuary when it comes to immigration. And now we have to win so much more for our families so that they can have safety, so that they can have everything that they need to survive and thrive. That's, that's where our movement, what's next for our movement? More work, hey, hey. Um, and it's gonna be more door knocking, and it's gonna be more political education, and it's gonna be more political agitation, and it's gonna be a lot more fights. But as long as we stay true to our values, and as long as we continue to understand that it's organization and unity that is the basis of our success, I know that we will be a shining example for this nation. And as Alex was saying earlier, people will want to replicate what they're saying here in the city of Chicago. So thank you all for being part of this movement. And thank you all for knocking doors and for donating and for showing up because we would not be where we're at today without the work of all of you and so many before you. So thank you. Um, where do we go from here? Um, I, I do want to honor Karen Lewis. Um, I do. Because she figured it out in 2013 how to like redirect our energy after a huge disappointment, all those losses that Alex, you know, said, talked about, you know. School closure. If I, if I, 50 school closings. 50. Like 50 from a list that had over 100. Jesus. Literally. Man, you don't understand a trauma like that. It still hurts. Ten years ago, you all. So Karen got up the next day and she gave our movement direction. And it is so hard to give people something in a loss because you ain't even got it. And she said, we've tried at the negotiating table. She says, we've gone to your board of education meetings. You just heard them talking about sleeping outside of the board of education. You know, people getting, a, you know, kicked out of the board meeting and banned for like life. Like the struggle is real, but it was really real. Um, and she said, look, Mayoral control, you keep telling me to hold you accountable for everything. So she said, we're going to hold you accountable. We're going to talk to voters. And this movement has added, listen to the words now, added talking to voters to his repertoire. Because that ain't the only thing we get to do. We got to do many things. So I want to say first, thank you. I think the gratitude and the humility that I feel right now you have no idea how proud I am of us and we. Remember, electoral politics is not something movement does because it betrays us. And there is great trepidation and peril in this work. People suspended that because of the hope, the aspiration, the possibility. I want to honor that. I do. I want to honor everyone who suspended that. And thank you because we don't get here without you. Very, very proud. We can have nice things. We can have nice things. We deserve this. 
we deserve this. And here's the last one is always the hardest one. We can hold this complex contradiction of governance. We can hold this complex contradiction because that's what it is, you all. It's a contradiction. We can hold that too. We can have nice things. We deserve this. And we can hold the complex contradiction of co-governance. And I am confident, based on what we've done already, that we can do this too. Stacey Davis-Gates is president of the Chicago Teachers Union. Carlos Ramirez-Rosa is a socialist city council member representing Chicago's 35th Ward. Alex Hahn is executive director of In These Times magazine, and he worked for two decades as a union, community, and political organizer in Chicago. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, the working class cannot simply lay hold of the ready-made state machinery and wield it for its own purposes. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. We are recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theorio Francos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio. And please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it's on iTunes or whatever, please rate and review us. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling your friends to check out the pod. Please make propaganda for us and do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this podcast up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. Thank you.